Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. We're going to look a little bit at the end of the Hagar story because we didn't finish that completely last time. And for those of you who weren't here last class, um, just as a reminder, we're, we're really comparing this dystopian society of The Handmaid's Tale in both the book and in the TV show, and comparing it to our Torah, comparing it to the ways in which we see handmaids and are coming to the realization that when women were barren and trying to produce um, a line for their family, that that we didn't have the things that we have today, such as surrogacy and infertility treatments and all those kinds of things. We had actual people who were were really used for their bodies to be able to produce an heir to a family. So again, I kind of gave this um, introduction last time, but just to remind ourselves, there is there is no judgment being passed here of our matriarchs and patriarchs, right? It's all, we're just looking at the Torah for what the Torah is giving us. And then we're comparing it to what we see as a created, fantastical uh, version of what what the, we believe to um, to have understood handmaids to be back in that time and how in modern day, they might have been utilized. So I'm not going to use words like rape, and I'm not going to use words like sex slavery, and I'm not going to use those kinds of terms, because ultimately, we don't really know what was going on back in the Torah times. We just know that there are comparisons to how these handmaids are being used, um, both in the Torah and also in, uh, in the novel and in the, in the TV show. One of the things, and this is where I'll share my screen, one of the things that we spoke a little bit about last time was this idea of the two different words being used for handmaid. One that seems to be a handmaid at the time of, of acquisition, right, at the time of being either given to a family or told of her, um, of her duties, And then another term that seems to be once she has had a child or once she has at least had sex with the master of the household, that the terminology for who she is and and her status, so to speak, in the family changes. So that's one of the things that we're going to see here a little bit as well when we look at Bilha and Zilpah. So we're going to let me just move you all a little bit so that I can. See you and the page. Give me one second here. Okay. Oh, oh gosh. Hold on. All right. Did that all just become blank for you? Okay. Me too. Okay. Let me see if this works. Hold <laughs> uh, on. This is my computer saying, why are you still at work? Um, okay. Hold on. Interesting. My screen is completely bare. So give me one second. Okay. Of course, all day long, my computer has been totally fine, and now it stops working. Um, okay, I'm just going to pause the recording for one second. Let's try this again. So what we're going to look at here is the end of the Hagar story. Um, we started this a little bit 
well, actually a lot of it, um, two weeks ago. And we're going to just finish out the story very quickly. I think that we actually read through all of the narrative. We just didn't look at, at the commentaries. Is that correct? Can people just nod and tell me if that? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, great. So here is Rabbeinu Bachia. Um, and Rabbeinu Bachia on, on this um, piece about Shifcha Mitzrit. So Hagar being an Egyptian slave woman, right? Again, these, there are going to be these different, different terminologies used for these different handmade women. So Rabbeinu Bachia says the Torah emphasizes that this woman belonged to Sarai personally, not to Avram, right? That this handmade, this particular woman, Hagar in this case, did not belong to the man, but belonged to the woman. Now, why is this interesting? Because when we look at the handmaid's tale or watch the handmaid's tale, whatever, whatever you choose, um, if you read in that story, it seems as though she, the handmaid belongs to the man. But interestingly, it actually said, it references in the store, in the book, at least. I'm not sure that I remember it specifically saying this in the, in the TV show, but in the book, it is made very clear. And I read this quote last time. It is made very clear that the handmaid belongs to the commander's wife and that the commander only quote, takes control of her during the ceremony, right? During the time that he's supposed to basically put a baby in her, right? That's the, that is the only time that he is in control of her. Um, but that the commander's wife is really the one who, who cares for her. So that seems to be the same as, as our Torah here, that Sarai was really the one to care for Hagar. We're going to see how that might be similar or different to Rachel and Leah. Um, and then, Rashi says uh, that shivcha means a handmaid. So interesting that those two words are being used differently, right? Rashi is um, commenting that it means handmaid, whereas Rabbeinu Bachia said slave woman. So again, those two different, two different um, uh, kind of connotations based on based on the her title. Uh, Rashi says she was a daughter of Pharaoh. When he saw the miracles which had been performed for Sarah's take, he said, it is better for my daughter to be a handmaid in this man's house than be a mistress in another man's house. So interesting that this is actually a quote from Midrash. Interesting that our rabbis are making a very uh, large distinction between handmaid and mistress, right? Mistress seems to be actually a woman who is who has less rights, at least based on the Midrash, right? Whereas when we watch or read The Handmaid's Tale, she seems to have very little rights, right? She she has to go where she's told to go. She has to look down. She has to say certain things. She has very few rights. But the Torah and the Midrash, the rabbis seem to be saying that a mistress is worse than a handmaid, that a handmaid somehow has potentially power or at least a role, whereas a mistress is just someone who is being slept with um, in the in the family home. So again, it's when we when we're using modern terminology, it's interesting to put these things up against one another because if we were to think of the term mistress in 2021 or the term handmaid in 2021, mistress always seem obviously seems a little bit less um, controlled than the idea of a handmaid, which seems like a, a slave in a certain a certain way. Yeah, Joel, go ahead. 
the way I read it, it seems like mistress is less. She's saying, you know, he, he, um, Sarah has so much esteem in his eyes that it's better to be a handmaiden in her house than yeah. a mistress in another house. Right, right. No, I, I think, I think you're right. But I think that the, there seems to be some kind of power that comes with handmaid that doesn't come with mistress, right? That you, that you should be able to be a handmaid in someone's home so that you have, at least the way that I'm reading it, to have a little bit more freedom or rights or, or at least worth. Um, whereas it sounds like mistress is the opposite of that. Are you reading it differently? You're getting that from this midwife? I think so. No, yeah, go ahead. The, the way I'm reading it is Sarah is, was, uh, um, had such high esteem in his eyes that even being a mis- a handmaiden in her house was better yeah. than being a mistress in another house. Oh, interesting. So you're reading it as, as putting, putting the be a small fish in a big pond in a, no, it's a really interesting read. I, I wouldn't have read it that way, maybe because of the way that I'm comparing <laughs> comparing the literature right now. But um, but that's a very interesting point that maybe maybe this and it would make sense. Maybe the rabbis here are actually highlighting Sarah, not so much the the role of the woman, but maybe highlighting Sarah to say, even if this is a bad role, better to be in Sarah's house than to be in another person's house. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, Leonard or Rebecca. Hi, I think we're misreading the word mistress. Mistress here doesn't mean what it means today, you know, just another woman right. who's fooling around. Mistress means the female of master. Looking in my dictionary over here for the word gvira, it's translated yeah. as lady, queen, queen mother, or in modern or newer Hebrew, a rich woman. It doesn't huh. mean mistress the way we're interpreting it. It means the, the you know, the, the female master of the, the house. house. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure, like Gverit, right? If you say Gverit, which is the same, the same word, just a different conjugation, it definitely means miss, right? Like Gverit shots, right? Miss shots. It, it's not, um, it's not a put down. It's just a status. Um, so you're, you're totally right. And for sure we are, that, that's why translations are really difficult because when you read the word mistress in 2021, that feels very different than just reading lady of the house um, back in the time of this midrash being, being um, written. So both you and Joel are pointing out this, um, this status piece, one for Sarah and one for the, for the other woman, but, but interesting that, that we have to take this at Torah's word, right? In terms of what was that status rather than us kind of laying what we might imagine that status to be based on how we would define these terms. I saw one other hand. Yeah, Esther, go ahead. Just unmute first. I was just thinking that the, the the reason that she it would probably be better for her is because the control was she was by another woman, which is a whole different ballgame living at that time in a in a society where men were controlling their women. Right. And as, as being the wife of a mistress or something in a man's house, yeah. he had a lot of control. And if he was not a nice guy, then it would have been very unhappy for her. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. One of the one of the quotes that I ended with last time was about how June in the in the book The Handmaid's Tale mentions that she was really hoping that the commander's wife would be someone who she could 
look up to and find comfort in and see as a sisterly figure, right? Which is potentially how, what Hagar wanted out of Sarah, right? And, and that, that, that was not in either case that what ended up happening for them, um, as the, as the handmaid in that, in that home. But that you're right. This, this idea that you'd be cared for by the woman potentially was something that would, that would allow you to have more, I keep using the word rights, but more, more availability in terms of what you do around the home and, and what your role was. It's a really great point. Um, okay. We're going to go on just so we at some point get to Rachel and Leah. Um, so this was actually the line that Rabbi Klickfeld spoke about in his sermon. And just to remind you, next week, Rabbi Klickfeld and I will be kind of finishing out this series by um, doing a source study. It'll be a, it'll be a Beitenu. Um, so it'll be a source uh, sheet uh, text study is the word I was looking for. A text study on like the general handmaid's tale to Brashi narrative that we've been looking at. But in his first sermon, this was something that he spoke about this idea of Ebanemimena, I will be built up from her, right? And the idea of how are you built up from, from this woman? Now, in a very tragic way, we actually understand this from, from this week's tragedy in our own community, right? When, when you have only one child, what does it mean if you cannot have children or if you no longer have children, right? So this idea of being built up from your, from the children that you have. And if you don't have any children, what, what kind of angst you have around wanting to have children so that you can be seen both in status and also in family as being built up. So obviously this is not great English, but it says I shall be builded up through her. That's how you would translate it directly in Hebrew through the marriage that I admit her as a rival into my house, right? That even though I, I don't want her to, to do this for me because there's going to be angst and there's going to be challenge around that. I know that it's important to build up my family. And so I'm going to bring this person into my home and make sure that I am built up from her. I think, and, and this is not explicitly said in The Handmaid's Tale, nor is it, um, I don't think explicitly kind of shown in the, in the show, but it seems that this is exactly how the commander's wife feels as well. Like, why couldn't I do this for my husband? A little bit of a spoiler alert in the most recent season of The Handmaid's Tale the commander's wife does get pregnant. So how does it feel when you're not sure where, when that baby's going to come or is it your fault or is it his fault or, you know, which now in, even in with modern day medicine, you don't often have answers to. So what does it mean to bring someone into the household and say, you take care of this very intimate, this very scary, this very, really sad problem that, that my family is dealing with? Um, Sforno says on this same, on this same piece, Sarah hoped that the jealousy, which would develop within her when she saw that Hagar gave birth to a child for Avram would stimulate her own biological and sexual urges so that in due course, she too would become pregnant by her husband. Now I joke all the time that the rabbis thought that they were doctors. Um, and that we too, during a time of COVID, all these rabbis have assumed the role of doctor, um, the, this particular commenta- co- commentary, this particular rabbi was not a doctor, um, but he, he is commenting here that somehow, based on the sexual urges that she might 
feel because of the jealousy that that you know was coming out of seeing her handmaid have sex with her husband that that would get her going to be able to have a child there is no basis in, in science or in medicine for any of that um but it makes sense that back in you know the the medieval times though i don't actually mean the the medieval period but you know back back in torah times that it could mean that if you saw someone else able to have sex or able to to sexually arouse your partner that somehow that would sexually arouse you and then you would be able to to procreate with your partner again has nothing to do with science and has nothing to do with medicine, but it's possible that that's what they believed was happening. Okay. Michael, Tamar, and then it looks like Barry and Kathy want it. Barry or Kathy wants it. The Sparno rabbi surprises me a little bit because we know uh, from the Tanakh that uh, Sarai's first reaction was that she laughed when she was told as if she already had this preconception. After all, she was 19 at the time of, Yitzhak's birth, she wasn't much younger than that. I'm just surprised that Sforno finds that uh, Hagar's actions were going to stimulate Sarai's sexual drive, where Sarai seems in a different scene to have just totally dismissed that possibility years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. It seems to like not be working with a timeline really here in this um, in this commentary. It's a really good point. Okay, Tamar. I'm just aware that um, very often one hears that after adopting a child, yes, somebody becomes pregnant that thought they, that would be impossible. So it's not a matter of a sexual urge, but something does happen. And um, I, I think it's very interesting that I don't know whether Sforno had observed this phenomenon or whether or where he came up with the notion, but. It is a phenomenon that's known. Yeah, it's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but it but it is for sure true that there are certain families that I actually went to rabbinical school with one um, who they adopted after many years of, of what they thought was kind of forever infertility. They adopted and they got pregnant right away. Um, and and so the, the kids are actually very similar in age, even though they're not they're not biological twins. Um, and again, as you're pointing out, like not medical, not biological, um, ac- according to science, definitely biology happening somehow that is um, uh, your body is reacting to having a baby. Um, but but it is possible that Sforno, you know, saw that happen or, or was part of a family where that was the case. Very interesting. Barry or Kathy? Um, I put my hand out. I thought I took it down because that was exactly what I was going to say. I know oh, yeah. a couple of people that um, had this. And it may not be only the women, but it may be the stimulation of the man. Sure. Um, that may change, but um, it does, it seems to happen. Yeah. Um, a lot. yeah. So there's, there's some, there is something, some kind of biological to somebody. Yes, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, Tybal. Um, I've known biological mothers, and in this case, it is mothers who adopt. I said it the wrong way. Non-biological mothers who only adopted yet somehow were able to stimulate oxytocin and other neurotransmitters and hormones and breastfeed an adoptive child. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I, again, 
I, I am not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV, but um, that is, yeah, I, I mean, I think there are different stories about all those kinds of things that um, clearly were also happening in Torah times and in the time of Sfordo. And, you know, so from anywhere between like the 11th and the 16th century, right, these rabbis were were seeing that happen in their own communities as well. And all the more so, right, when there was no medical intervention. So someone, adoption probably wasn't happening so much, but if you were in a in a community where there were babies being born all the time, potentially you for years were unable to have a baby, and now all of a sudden you are able to have a baby. And so maybe that's the same kind of stimulation that is happening here. Um, okay, Radak. So Ebane, the son from this union would be called Avne, I shall be built up, or Evne, I shall be, I shall be built up. All children are a building consisting of genetic input by father and mother. Thank you, Radak, for telling us that. Sarai said that any son from this union with her husband would be accepted by her as if he were part of her. Right, so Radak is just basically bringing up what we already know, which is man and woman come together, make a baby. It's not necessarily her biological child, but that Sarah is basically claiming any baby that comes out of my husband from this particular union, which I made happen, it's as if it came from me, right? It's as if it came from my own DNA, which again, I've not adopted in my own life, though I have adopted um, family members. And I will tell you, they feel very much like they have our DNA. They, they, they have very similar, you know, stomach issues and very similar uh, personality pieces and, you know, all those kinds of things. If someone is brought into your life, you feel as though they were brought from the same DNA, just like a biological child would be. Um, uh, and it says then she would treat him as her own son. Um, da, 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 da. I'm just, I'm going to skip some of these so we can get to Rachel and Leah. Okay. Let's, okay. So we're actually not going to, we're going to stop here. We're going to stop along the way um, at these few verses. I don't know why that, yeah, Barry and Kathy, go ahead while I fix this, whatever this is. So, um Regarding the change in terminology of, of the Hebrew word, uh, the, yeah. the handmaid before the sexual and the handmaid after, uh, when uh, Sarah gave her handmaid uh, before, um, she considered that anything coming out of that would be her child. Um, but when after afterwards uh, in Torah, uh, Agar behaves uh, uppity, uh, uh, to Sarah, uh, Sarah no longer perceives Hagar as her, in the previous category, her handmaid, but as yeah. a competitor. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, especially in terms of these terms, right, that, that the status piece changes almost because of how Sarah is now interacting with her and feels about her. That's not so much what she's done for the family, but also how Sarah is now considering her as the as part of the family or or distant from part of the family um and and therefore her role changes because of sarah's kind of animosity towards her um or if we wanted to be kinder about it jealousy towards her and, and yeah. what's really important about that turning point is yeah. that therefore that the child yeah sarah sees that child less as her child right right so right. When, she does, when she does have her child it's a, it's a very easy step for her to consider removing the other child because it's not hers anymore. Sure. 
Right. As soon as she has her own heir, right. As soon as she is built up from her own, from her own DNA, so to speak, it's a lot easier for her to say, okay, everyone else, everyone else get out. Now I no longer need that. What I'm suggesting is that at that point where Hagar was uppity. Yeah. Sarah was already distancing herself from both Hagar and the child. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think I'm agreeing with you, even if I'm not, even if I'm not stating it back the same way, I'm agreeing with you. Um, okay. I want to look at a few other pieces here. Um, these are actually not from the story of Hagar or um, Rachel and Leah, but I wanted to show you a few other places where these terms are used um, for, oh, the first one is not terms, but we'll see others um, in terms of handmaids. So this first one, you all know very well, though I don't know if you will um, connect to it. It's brought up in the Handmaid's Tale book. Again, I don't remember if it's brought up in the show. Um, when you read a book, you can take notes. When you're watching a show, you're not taking notes on everything that, <laughs> that is being said in the dialogue. So this, this was definitely in the, in the book that women were going to have a harder time giving birth based on Eve, right? That Eve was kind of the one who put this all out into the world for us, that we were now going to have, we were going to struggle not only giving birth, but also getting pregnant. And so when, when the women in The Handmaid's Tale are going through birth, which they had to do to these children who were biologically theirs, but didn't end up being kept as theirs. Um, this was brought up in the book as I'm going to make it really hard for you. Um, but you're doing it for, for your husband, right? This is to give him a child, which is a really, we gloss over this in Bray Sheet, right? We don't talk about this so much. Um, mostly because we in an egalitarian society don't believe this, um, to be the case, right? We don't believe that as women, we are going through a painful birth because we've done something wrong and to give a gift to our husband, that's not, we don't, we don't see that as um, the consequence for our, for terrible childbirth. Um, But it is what it says in the Torah. This is the exact verse from the Torah um, and a, a quote punishment, right? For, for what Adam and Eve go through. So I just wanted to show that to you. Then in Shmuel, what is with all this weird font stuff, guys? I'm so sorry about that. Let me change this. Um, sometimes if I move, if I like create it on one computer and then go to another, this happens. So. Um, Okay, so this is amatecha, right? We're seeing this term again, which Barry is keeping us honest to keep talking about these terms. So amatecha is being used here again as as handmaid. So this is from Shmuel Aleph, and it says, and she vowed a vow, vetidor neder, which we also see in Leviticus many, um, many times, and said, Adonai tzvaot, so God of hosts, if you will indeed look on to the affliction of your handmaid, Right. So it's this is actually the first time it's mentioned. Amatecha. Um, if you can see Beoni Amatecha. So if you can if you can see onto the pain of your ama, of your handmaid, um, 
and remember me. And you can remember me and then not forget your handmaid, but will you, but will give your handmaid a child. And in this case, it's saying a, a, a male child, then I will give him to God all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So we know this as Nazir. We know this as a certain, a certain type of, um, child that is born, Samson, hair, all these things we're not going to go into right now, but this is where it comes from. Uh, but again, just to see this idea of where an ama is being used, uh, the ama is being used to give birth to this child that then is very much so going to be taken over by the, by the mother. And then um, not only by the mother, but then also given over to God, right? So there's like, there's three steps here. The handmaid is going to give birth. The mother is going to take possession of the child. And then the mother is going to say, oh, but actually this child is, is for God. Yeah, Henry. So just for clarification, I think in this context, there isn't another mother. This is the mother. And what right. she's saying is that she's beseeching God as if she was merely a handmaid to be able to produce this child. Um, correct. Meaning you're, you're just saying that it's not three women in this particular case or two women. And then, yeah, right. You are correct. Right. The word, the handmaid here is not being used as an actual character, but being used as a status piece. Um, so as, as Henry said, like, this is, this is not a woman saying, and I also have a handmaid, but rather the fact that her body, her use in this world was as if, she was a handmaid giving birth to a child that then was going to be given to God. Right. Sorry if my if my um, if my example of the three different steps was confusing. But yes, that's exactly that's exactly the case. Yeah, Tamar. I thought she was saying that she was a handmaid to God. Correct. And that's what Henry's saying too. Yeah. Okay. That, sorry. My example really threw us. I'm sorry about that. Yes, that's exactly right. So she is claiming that based on her understanding of what a handmaid is, that her giving birth to this child is as if she is a handmaid to God. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah, Barry, Kathy. In the Samson story, does his father even, even mentioned? Um, that's a good question. You know, is, I don't, if, if, if I don't know the, a name if he is mentioned. I don't, I don't think, think so. Is. And, and yeah. the, there is a parallel here with the Jesus story. Mm. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. you Nazir know, is, is, is born to a woman who's uh, an ama to God. Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting. Um, that is something to definitely look into. I... I, you know, an ama isn't necessarily according, you know, uh, if we're going to make the parallel to the Jesus story, isn't necessarily a virgin, right? So it could be that, that she, that there was a man involved. Um, but I do not know Nah well enough. Don't tell Rabbi Dr. Avi Havivi, um, to remember if a man is mentioned, but it seems like by all the shaking of the heads that he, that he is not. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with he is not. <laughs> um, Okay, Ruth, this is a really interesting one I had not focused on before. So when I when I saw this, uh, when I was preparing a few weeks ago, I was really fascinated. Um, so it's this is in chapter three of Ruth. And uh, 
uh, Ruth is being asked, right, who are you? And she says, I am your handmaid, Ruth. Um, so handmaid here is being used very, at this point in the story, very differently because Ruth is not about to have a child, right? That happens at the end of the story, um, as we know in terms of our lineage uh, with David. But this particular moment has nothing to do with the child. So it's interesting that the word ama here is being used in a sexual sense, right? Because she's trying to um, whether, what, well, I shouldn't say trying to, it depends on how you read it. Maybe she's trying to, to seduce him or potentially she's trying, um, to, to kind of make her way into his household. Um, but right now it has nothing to do with a child. It has everything to do with her relationship to him. And yet she's still calling herself even Anama. So to go back again to the way in which we're using this terminology of Shifcha and Ama, it is interesting to see here that this, this use of Ama doesn't even have to do with a child yet, but rather just kind of a sexual type of relationship or connection to the man of the household. So I found that very fascinating. I had never, um, I never focused on that before. And then it continues to say in the middle of the night, um, the man gave a start and pulled back and there was a woman lying at his feet, right? Again, so just to point out again, this, this sexual connection of where the word ama was used. Okay. A lot of hands just jumped up at me. So Henry, Michael, oh, even more Henry. Oh no, one went away. <laughs> Henry and Michael. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so just to clarify for the question about whether a man is identified, yes, it is. Yeah. It, we're talking about Hannah, and Hannah is the wife of uh, uh, Yohama, son of Eliyahu, Eliyahu, son of so forth, right? So, so that's that's all right at the beginning of Samuel. The, the man is definitely identified, and, and it's Hannah, which is one of the two wives who is barren, that's making this plea. So... Okay, walk me through that one more time. So a man is identified. Well, the, there, there was a man from Ramatan of the uh, Zephyrites. Okay. In the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elikanan, son oh. of Yohanan, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of... So we've got a pretty good lineage. Oh, here. yeah, he has a good lineage. Okay, yes. so he's definitely and, mentioned. Two wives, one was Hannah and the other was Penina. And Penina... Hannah had kids, and Hannah is the one that's begging here. Correct, correct. Okay. Ah, interesting. Was that, was that Samson? Yeah, awesome. Uh, that, uh, good, yeah, as Barry said, Yashar Koach, good, uh, good, good skills looking that one up. Thank you for doing that. Good sleuthing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Michael. Uh, the roof reference really caught me. Yeah. Is that supposed to be Ruth and Boaz? Yeah. Because that's what I thought, and then I heard Barry just now, and I realized he wasn't referring to Ruth. But Ruth and Boaz, the whole I, the way I always remember Ruth and Boaz is that Boaz invited her in, and he slept at her feet, and it was supposed to be a very initially a very non on both sides non sexual intentionally non sexual relationship where they went almost started their way to make sure that it wasn't perceived as a sexual relationship in the beginning. So interesting. Um, Rabbi Josh Pernick and I taught a class. Yeah, on. We've taught, yeah. I, yeah. I but was partially bringing me up. Right. And one of the things, one of the things that he and I disagreed on was exactly that. 
uh, was whether or not it was a sexual relationship or not. It seems to be pretty clear that if she's sleeping at his feet, whether or not in that moment it was sexual, she's she's desiring it for for it to be, um, or at least to make her way into his home, which again is part of what's so interesting about this particular use of shivcha, because if it has nothing to do with with what could happen in a sexual relationship, it at least is talking about a handmaid as use as um, a sexual being, right? Which if you, if you read the book and you watch the show, there's, there's very little about the handmaid that is more quote useful than the fact that she has a womb. Um, And even there are some of the handmaids in the book and also in the show um, end up with physical punishments and ailments like losing an eye or losing a finger, all these kinds of things. And what keeps coming up over and over again is you don't need those parts to be a handmaid, right? So it's, it's interesting that, that here, when we're talking about Ruth, that, and she's calling herself this, right? That she seems to see herself in this relationship also as in a, in some kind of sexual or romantic or intimate relationship with Boaz. Okay, Tybal, we're going to, and then we're going to go on because Rachel and Leia are getting a cheap side of this deal. All right. Um, Just fast because people started talking about Ruth and I started thinking about the different ways to read the Torah one in the context of the narrative and the other in the context of the cycle where you know what's happening because for this, it puts such a bigger emphasis on the man because the whole lev- um, leveret marriage thing. Yeah. Even though the name, there's not like anything like a Western surname, the name changes every generation, but it's a becomes such a bigger deal mm-hmm. in the, because con- that was what went on with Ruth and Boaz is the whole leveret marriage for her first, for the first husband. Anyway, so going back to the handmaid, so then to me, it's, it goes back to the discussion of was this really about Sarah's consequence in the household or was it his consequence in the household? Because when you introduce leverage marriage, it matters more for him. Right. Yes. I mean, we're not de- we're definitely not dealing with leverage marriage with Abraham and Sarah. Um, but but interesting as a parallel. Yeah, I'm not even sure how to connect them because the handmaid was just being it is being used in such a different way with Abraham and Sarah than than Ruth is kind of deeming herself in this story. Um, yeah, it was just the same word and that you brought yeah, yeah. text from Ruth. So I went off totally. on this tangent. Yeah. No, it's very it's it's a very interesting point and and one we could dive into much more deeply when when we when we have the time and we're not going to go on to Rachel and Sarah uh, Leah. Um Okay, so this is actually in the book. Rachel and Leah's story is the one that, um, like, there's the Rachel and Leah Center, right? It's actually the, the the part of the story that is seen more as connected to The Handmaid's Tale as a book. Um, whether or not that means that Hagar's story is separated apart from or because Rachel and Leah had more of kind of a transactional handmade experience than Hagar. Hagar was much more so in the home um, than just kind of a a person having sex with a husband to produce heirs. Um, but okay, we're gonna we're gonna look at it in the in the text here. So Lavan gave Zilpa his handmaid 
onto his daughter Leah for a handmaid. So we're seeing the word shifcha here. So interesting again that we're seeing a different word. We're not seeing ama. This is shifcha. So it seems to be that because she is being given over in this moment, that that's why shifcha is being used. So vayiten lavan la etzilpa. So there's this this transactional move of. She was mine to then give to you. So Leah is getting Zilpa as her handmaid. Um, and then a few verses in the next chapter later, and she said, here is my handmaid Bilha, Rachel is saying, and here is my handmaid Bilha, a different word used, right? Ama now is for Bilha, Zilpa has Shifcha. So just keep that in mind. Bo eleha veteled al birkai ve gam anochimi mena. This is a very sexual statement. What it literally means is come into her, onto her, right? Like have sex with her is basically what this is saying. Veteled al birkai, and she will give birth on your on your knees. How does he? How do they say it here? Uh, and let her bear upon my knees, right? Yeah, and she will, and she will give birth upon my, upon my knees. The ibane, and I will build up. I will be built up, um, because of her, right? From her. So this is actually where the ceremony in the Handmaid's Tale comes to be, right? That that when the woman has the handmaid in her lap and she's holding her arms, that she is literally. Um, you know, having, having intercourse, right? That she's being penetrated. She's having intercourse with the commander, but it is in the lap of the commander's wife. It's in the, it's happening on her knees, right? And then when the handmaids give birth in the story, they also give birth that way. Um, they give birth in the same kind of, she's giving, she's giving birth, but it's as if it is happening from the commander's, the commander's wife's body. A funny sentence to say. Um, again, this word ama is being used very much sexually as opposed to transactionally. So shifcha before, when we're talking about zilpa is transactional, bilha here is being used, um, sexually. And that's the word ama. So now Bilha becomes a Shifcha because she's becoming to Jacob as a wife. So again, this terminology is changing because she's gone from just the person giving birth and just the person having sex with Jacob in order to give birth and being brought into the household with status being brought into the household as what I would call a handmaid, right? Being brought into um, the household to do more than just than just give birth. And, but interestingly, it says she gives Bilha her handmaid to be wife and to come onto him, Yaakov, right? So there still is this sexual piece here, but it seems to be that she is now coming to him as a wife, as opposed to coming to him or him really coming to her um, for, for, the, for the use of having a child. Okay, Barry and Kathy, and then Tybal. Okay, so if, um, the difference, um, so the first one with Levon giving Zilpa his handmaid, so she's already been with somebody. Yeah. So 
Is it possible that this handmaiden was Leia's mother? And and that um, would make her kind of old, but, or it's a young woman, but she's not unknown to other men. So maybe that's why there's no actual word there. It's this, she's a, you know, it's not the same because she's, she's not a, not a virgin handmaid or, or yeah. um, whereas the, uh, the, we don't know who built, if Bill, Bill Hart was like a nurse to Rachel or, uh, or not. We don't know that the difference in the, um, in the interactions. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, they definitely <laughs> have, yeah, they definitely have different jobs, right? It's very clear that they are, they are different things to these different women, but the Levan, um, the Levan piece giving Zilpa, that's a very interesting, uh, yeah, I've, I have not thought about that before. Are you reading a commentary? Or you, did you just come up with no, that? No, just reading the line that says, yeah. Uh, if if the English is correct, I don't know that the Levon gave Zilpa his handmaid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is correct. So, because all the other ones, they, it was her. The, yeah, it's their handmaid, yeah. and where they got. So Sarah getting a handmaid in Egypt is not from her home. Right. Not, she's older already. Right. Um, so, and, you know, it's like on the, on their travels or something at the point. Um, but, and yeah. we don't know when Rachel got her handmade. Well, until now, the handmaids have been owned by the women. Right. But this is Levon's handmaid. Right, right. That's what I thought was so fascinating in Kathy's statement. Yeah, I, um, Right, it's possible that either she was being used by another another woman, right, another another wife, um, and therefore he now had possession of her because she was of no use any longer, or it's possible that she was just that Shifcha was a, was a different type of use before becoming an ama, um, and that maybe that had something to do with his possession of her rather than the wife's possession of her. I don't know. That is a fascinating statement. I'll have to look into that more. Did um, Zopa actually become an Oma? Or did she just... Um, she, I believe she remains a Shifcha. Which is interesting, of course, because she does give birth. So, mm-hmm. interesting. I would have to look to make sure of that, but I think I would have brought it had her, had her status changed, unless I just I missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Helen and then Tybal. I just had a question. Yeah. Um, Leah did not need a handmaid to bear children to Jacob. She had children. Did I miss something? So why would Laban give a handmaid to Leah right. for that purpose? Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good question. I think that probably because like a handmaid was probably just a general... Uh, Again, this is where these two words being translated as the same thing in English is really unhelpful <laughs> because okay. my guess is that a shifcha and an ama were actually two very different categories of women in a household and that a handmaid was probably much less like the show we were watching or the book we were reading and much more like a person who was 
a helpful part of the household, but then turned into an ama would be my would my, be my guess if if needed in terms of building a building a an heir right in terms of giving a child. But it's a that's a very a very good point um, and one that I always just took for granted in terms of them being given the same things. Uh, Tybal and then Henry. Um, if another woman or another person is there when someone's giving birth, to me, the natural way to catch the baby is with hands. Yeah. So I started thinking about knees, and I thought maybe you, Rabbi Schatz, might do a riff on the root for knees being blessed and the thing with the language, yeah. because maybe that's elevating it beyond just the very carnal that we just had about coming into when something Interesting. That's a very, that's a very interesting point. When, when, um, when the hand, the, not handmaids, um, when Shifra and Pua, um, are talked about in Exodus, um, they are, um, nursemaids. Is that what they're called? I don't remember what they're called in English, but they are, um, they're told to be giving birth on, on birthing stools, right? And the same kind of, oh, someone just chatted it maybe. Let's see. Midwives. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I could not think of the word um, that that they are also, you know, using the knees and birthing stools and all of these kinds of things that we think of as kind of um, uh, assisting, assisting the, the idea of birth. I love the idea of using berech, which means knee as the idea of blessing, bringing blessing into the world. That's definitely beautiful. Not sure that that's what they meant, but I love the drosh. Um, but but yes, I I believe that that is partially what is going on here in terms of talking about being birthed onto knees and and really making that something that is not just being birthed into the world, but also giving some kind of possession, um, you know, to to a body part that is um, very active in in the birthing process. Uh, Henry. So I think if I was uh, really on top of things, I would have grabbed a Hebrew and English version. Uh-huh. Um, I only have I only have English here. Okay. But I but I wanted to be clear for people that um, the line above this is when when Leah is being married to Jacob. Yeah. And he's being given um, the hand. The handmaid at that point in line in uh, in chapter twenty nine. Yeah, that's that's the time when we're talking about the transition happening at the time of the marriage. Right. And a few verses later, when he is giving when he is marrying uh, Rebecca, I said Rachel. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he gets uh, Bilha exactly the same way. Yeah. So it's not. It's not like um, it, it, they, they're kind of a, they should have been a couplet, I think, to to let people know that that's the initial way things were handed over. And yeah. And they and it says in my translation that it's to be as her maid or to be oh. as her servant. Right. Interesting. So I think that was the, the intent. But if it's if it's the same word in both cases, like it is here, then it still remains pretty ambiguous as to exactly what that role is supposed to be. Yeah, I can definitely look it up, but you, but um, you're you're bringing up a really good point that the that the wife came with at, in this part of the story, right? That was not the case with Sarah, but the wife came with 
a handmaid, right? The wife came with someone to be her, her maid, which as we know from watching, you know, shows that depict European society, if you are very rich, you came with a maid, right? It, was, it has nothing to do with, with the fact that she could give birth or not. It had much more to do with taking care of her needs and washing her feet and all those kinds of things. So exactly. thank you for bringing that up. It's a real, that's a very good point. And um, I'll look up the Hebrew because it would be interesting to see if that, if that um, category of person stays a shifcha and does not ever become an ama, or if it changes based on her use in the family, right? If it goes from washing feet to I'm barren and need a child, does the does the terminology change, which would be interesting to to look into? Um, if I had another thesis to write, I would uh, I would maybe look into this, but I don't. Thank goodness. Um, okay, so I want to just read through these pieces very quickly, and then again, I hope you'll either be at Shul or or listen to um, the teaching that Rabbi Klickfeld and I do more on this topic next week. Um, but just to kind of finish out this piece, I want us to read through the ceremony uh, because it has everything to do with this Rachel and Leah, Bilha and Zilpah piece. So this is directly from the book. When Moira asks, Moira is a different handmaid, not the, not the main character, June, asks if the handmaids are meant to have, quote, intercourse with their commanders, Aunt Lydia, who's kind of the, the overseer in the community, gleefully announces, quote, when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, see, she said unto Jacob, give, this is obviously their translation in the book, give me children or else I die. And Rachel said, behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her and sh- she shall bear upon my knees that I may have children by her. So they're using this quote of Old Testament of Torah for us um, as a way of, of explaining why this is happening. Once a month on fertile days, the handmaid shall lie between the legs of the commander's wife. Aunt Lydia explains the two of you will become one flesh, one flower waiting to be seated. This is how she's explaining what the handmaid's um, role is in this, in the novel. Before the ritual takes place, the commander reads from a translation of Genesis 30, one through five. During the ritual, Alfred, it's uh, the names of the people are, are uh, always of, and then the commander's name. So it actually, this should be, tra- this should be capitalized. So you can see that like of Fred, right? His name was Fred. So she is, she is seen as, owned by him and therefore of, but it, it's pronounced Offred, is made to sit with her head in the lap of the commander's wife, literally upon her knees, while the commander has sex with her. Everyone remains fully clothed. No one looks at each other. And the commander's wife is even holding Offred down so tightly that it leaves marks on her skin. If the handmaid becomes pregnant, the child belongs to the commander and his wife. Right. So this is, it's an extremely animalistic transactional ceremony that is being depicted in this story and in this uh and in this show but it's coming off of this idea of what a handmaid did now again as i started the class by saying who knows if it felt this kind of um uh, i don't know animalistic to the handmaids of torah times but whether or not it felt that way it seems as 
though their their job, their role of an ama, again, not necessarily of a shifcha, was to bear a child and to probably bear a child in such a way that she had no rights around whether or not that was something that was interesting to her or that she even wanted, but that it was just something that she was going to provide for the family. Yeah, Barry, go ahead. Well, uh, our, our Torah story uh, really takes a different attitude towards the, uh, what's the plural, I mean? Yeah. Uh, that uh, they, they become the uh, uh, progenitors of tribes. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and so the, 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 the tribes, of course, they all come up from Jacob. Yeah. But they know which, they, they, they know which, which mother they're from. Yeah. And, and and so they 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 lose their identity as uh, ama, and they stand as um, maternal um, heads of state. Yeah, I think I think you're right to a certain extent, and yet we don't say in our amida bilha and zilpa. We say Rachel and Leah, right? So there are there are ways in which they are lifted up by us much more so obviously than the handmaid's tale in terms of how those handmaids are being treated in in that dystopian society. And we still erase them to a certain extent and give, and give the, the maternal, I don't know, ownership for lack of a better word um, to our matriarchs when we know that they weren't necessarily the ones who actually gave birth. But I agree with you that that our Torah does a very good job of making sure that we know who came from who, right? It it does say later on that like Reuven was the child of, right? And it goes on to say um, who each one of them was actually came from in terms of birth. But in terms of household, they came from Jacob and Leah or Jacob and Rebecca, uh, Jacob and Rachel. <laughs> now I'm doing that, um, which is, which is very interesting. Uh, Rebecca and Leonard. Yeah, I was going to say that. So the description of Alfred and what she was doing uh, on behalf of the commander's wife, she was, she was supposed to um, get pregnant and give birth yeah. for the commander's wife. It, yeah. It's consistent with um what Bilha was supposed to do for Rachel, that it right. was going to be uh, on behalf of Rachel because Rachel hadn't been able to have a child. I was looking in a, a book talking about who's who, and it says that Zilpa, um, who was considered, you know, one of the concubines uh, of Jacob, that when Leah thought she could no longer have children, yeah. it was that she gave Zilpa to Jacob to continue having children, but, but, you know, according to this source as a, as a concubine, not having children for Leah, but uh-huh. having the children for Jacob as a separate kind of as a second, uh, as a second wife. Right. Well, and I think that that's where we see this difference in like quote ownership, right? Like, was it for him or was it for her? Um, and so we see that in what you're um, and what you're pointing out in terms of the the difference between Bilha and Zilpa, and yet the the common denominator is Jacob, <laughs> so the being built up for him is still is still prevalent there, and maybe that's why Zilpa, though she didn't have as quote active as of a role as Bilha, still needed to be part of the picture to 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 be part of that process. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, Nancy. So I hear. 
Barry's point about at least we know these are the women and these were the children that created the tribes, but we never, or at least we don't usually deal with the whole idea of did these women, you know, like have any idea of giving consent to what was happening right. to them, right? Like right. we don't really talk about that very much. Yeah. Which is what really is brought up, right, a lot in The Handmaid's Tale. Like we, we know they had, you know, they did not really consent to this except for the fact that that's all they could do. Right. Right. Well, I think, and that's, and that's why Rabbi Klefeld and I have been very careful to not use words like rape or sex slavery or those kinds of things, because back in the day, it was just a different society, right? There was, there was no such thing as consent because women had no rights (laughs) and women were just bodies giving birth to to babies. Um, Which is why when I read this or when I watch the show, it's not as hard for me to say, oh, this is connected to our Torah because it's not, it, it is and it's not, right? It is connected to our Torah in that we can see the, because it was written this way, we can see the connections to our actual canon and verses from Brashid, but it also is not connected because we can't read modernity into what was happening in Torah times when status and gender and all of those things were just so different we can learn from it now that this should never happen but but there's no way for us to to kind of layer them one on top of the other and just say oh they're exactly the same this handmaid was just like that handmaid which is part of the reason and I told Rabbi Klinkfeld this when I was researching for the class two weeks ago part of the reason that I was so fascinated by the two different uses of the same word in English for handmaid that shifcha and and ama seem to actually be very different types of women in the category of the Torah, and yet in English they are categorized as handmaid. So to to break down even that um, status piece to me is is very interesting and very telling um, of women's different roles and status even during that time. Um, this one last piece, and then and then I'm happy to um, happy to hear some more thoughts. So okay, so this is this this is written in a in a modern, obviously midrash um, by Wilda C. Gaffney, who I had never heard of until I found this, but I thought this was really fascinating. Through the wombs of Rachel, Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah, Israel's people were birthed by choice and by force. Now, of course, again, we're reading a lot of 21st century into this, so take this with a grain of salt. The text says nothing to suggest that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Bilhah and Zilpah. Also very interesting. They are casualties of nation building, but their children, their grandchildren, and their descendants will claim and be claimed by the God of their patriarchs. And some of us who claim the God of Israel, including through the life and teachings of this actually does bring in the Jesus piece. I forget who mentioned Jesus before. I think it was Barry. Also claim Zilpah, Bilhah, Hagar, and of all the unnamed womb slaves, very fascinating terminology, and what has become our spiritual ancestry. So this is a a fascinating, very strong, I agree with about 75% of the statement, but it's a really interesting way of thinking about how we can take this and and um, take that 21st century knowledge and look at like the idea of a womb slave really like takes the idea of just sex slavery like to a whole nother very traumatizing level. Um, 
but to, to, to read into what was happening in our Torah with an eye towards what we understand in today's, in today's day. Um, any, any comments, thoughts, questions? Yes, Marlise or Gary. Um, I just, as you're talking, I just was thinking about the um, scene with uh, when Jacob con- is confronting or seeing Esau for the first time in all those years and how I just remember how he, all of his households are arranged. It seems like yeah. it's in the order of like the most Rachel and those children are the most protected and then Leah and then um, on with, uh, I don't remember which order, but yeah, um, yeah. the two. So it's sort of, we, we, that's kind of the perspective that we've sort of learned to how we see it. We see it from his viewpoint and how there's a status and um, just there's definitely, there's definitely a status and, and Jacob from the beginning, right. And knows that he wants one sister and gets another, right. And that's very clear to us. Um, someone was comparing actually the, uh, the, the moment where Isaac, um, is kind of duped by his two kids. And then Jacob is then duped uh, by Mm -hmm. his father-in-law with his wives. And how interesting that kind of history repeated itself in that way, Um, having nothing to do with handmaids, but just an interesting piece of Torah. Um, But yeah, I think, I think we, we definitely know a status piece, right? We definitely know that Bilha and Zilpah or Hagar um, are not seen in the same kind of light and of the same kind of status as our matriarchs. Whether or not that's fair, I don't, I'm not particularly interested in even commenting on because it just is what it is. But, but it is, it is an interesting point of when we hear of, of lineage to know who comes from who and who then takes precedent over, over the, the lineage of just our people in general. Um, right. Joseph comes from Rachel, doesn't come from a handmaid. Um, and then a, a whole story comes from, comes from him. Mm-hmm. Helen, was that a hand? Yeah. Oh, just unmute, unmute first. <laughs> Sorry. This okay. is written by the victors. Yeah. And the men were always the victors. Yeah. The, we're not, I'm not saying that the women were always the losers, yeah, yeah. but until very recently, it was the, uh, God, the, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we just added the matriarchs yeah. very recently. Yeah. And I'm not sure what's going to happen in a hundred years, you know, and, right, you right. know we're, we're going to see it very differently. Sure. So I think that this opens up the whole role of women yeah. more than just the handmaids. Yeah. It's a very uncomfortable feeling uh, that we have of the place of women in Judaism, which we we debate about and we make excuses for and we deal with. But the truth is that the role of women is not great in historic Judaism. Oh, for sure, for sure, and and in in a certain way, right? The women are are being lifted up um in these stories in particular because if you think about it the men are getting very little airtime when talking about children right we're talking a lot about how the women can have the children and if they can't bring in another woman um and and though that doesn't mean that they have rights or or status or even claim to their own lives because they're becoming you know these kind of baby factories um 
they still are getting much more, they, they, they are being talked about much more than the men in those particular stories. And God feels badly for the barren woman. So mm-hmm. you're totally right that history was written and Torah was written, written by men for men. And I think that it is interesting as women to read into those stories and see where it is that the, there are like glimmers of light into these women's stories mm-hmm. um, where we've glossed over or we just haven't, um, we haven't paid enough attention to where the women really should have had um more, more power and more voice for sure. Um, Henry Tybel and then Barry. So uh, sideways, um, following on with what uh, Helen just said, but in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, the other thing I like to point out is that the two tribes that we allegedly have both came from Leah. They're the third and fourth child of Leah, right? Levi yeah. and Judah. And if you also look at the way the whole Torah is written, and essentially the whole Bible is written, it's really the book of the tribe of Judah coming out on top almost Mm -hmm. all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And then the tribe of Levi as kind of the sidekick, right? Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting uh, observation, really, that we... um, we are writing the history in the context of who are the surviving tribes. Hmm. Yeah. And and the fact that also Leah, if we're going to go back to just, I, now I'm forgetting who brought, was it Nancy who brought up the idea of, Oh no, it was Marley's brought up the idea of, of the different lineage, right. And how it goes in order, right. Leah is not the favored. And yet you're right that the tribes that come from her are the tribes that we spend the most time dealing with both in Torah and then in Nach, right? They, they, they follow us. And also, also Jacob really wasn't the favored in his family other than, you know, by Rachel, right? So, right. by Rivka. So, yeah. so um, you know, I also pointed out in a drash a while ago that we're the children of the least favored uh, parents, right? Yes, yeah. Right. And it is, it is interesting how we, we kind of, we, we definitely are a people that come from kind of like the, the, the downtrodden in more ways than one, right? Like not just the slavery story, but also the story of being the, the, the people that come from Jacob, from the one who almost didn't even get the blessing, right? Definitely wasn't supposed to be the one who got the blessing. Um, so, so interesting that we are, we come from the quote weaker link uh, that becomes the stronger link because it allows us to be a, a people. Um, okay, Tybal and then Barry. Um, two fast things, because as a genealogist, when someone starts talking about lineage, lineage it gets me going. <laughs> so, but symbolically, what we wish for is our male children to be like Ephraim and Manasha. Uh-huh. So yeah. even if that's not who survived, that's where we put symbolic weight. That's one. Sure. Sure. But the other is to go back to Ruth, the way I like to see that book is the whole thing is really just a justification for the end of why a woman from Moab deserved to be the, what is she, great grandparent or great great, I'm blocking at the moment, yeah, of David, of David who whose lineage is, is from the other line. Yeah. I mean, you know, may know some scholars see that as the entire book of Ruth as yeah. 
it's the validation of David's uh, birth lines. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for adding that. Uh, Barry or Kathy. I just want to leave us with the thought that uh, women are a, a, a primary force throughout Torah. There are our prophets. God speaks through women. Women protect the continuation of our lineage in, 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 in uh, Shemot. Women are our judges. Women are a, a very prominent role in, in Torah. As, women, as, as, as people, as individuals, not as objects. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And I think that that's part of the reason, that's a great, great note to end on. I think that's part of the reason why this was so disturbing to Rabbi Kligfeld and so interesting um, for me to engage in, in terms of looking at the Torah and the text of this dystopian society, because I think that we do a really great job of uplifting those women in such a way that we do see them as strong and we want to bring their names into our Amidah or we want to bring um, the light to the, to the, um, oh my gosh, midwives. I had to look back at the chat. I couldn't remember the the word again. Um, Bring light to those midwives who did save Moshe, right? Without the midwives, wouldn't have had a whole story of Moshe, right? That is a really important part of what we do as a people. And um, there, there are ways in which they need to be uplifted even more because of the oppression that they, that they saw um, in, in the ways in which they were used um, for their bodies, which again, as someone is pointing out in the chat, like they, they also had to be the ones to give birth. Men can't give birth. So there are also like biological factors here um, that whether or not it was, it was done in the correct manner women were the ones who were going to, who were going to be able to give birth and, and make sure that those lines continued. Um, I, I, I hope that this was interesting to all of you and, and really just the beginning of a connection that you could make. Um, Rabbi Klickfeld and I are very excited to do this text study together next week and to, to bring it all to a close. Um, but really for me, this was a very fascinating way of, diving into stories that very often we just gloss over because we think we know them. And so we just gloss over them and we assume that the handmaids will be there next year when we talk about them. And they did good work, right? They they gave us lineage that was really important to our story. Um, and also it's important to, to talk about challenging pieces of our Torah, even if they're being done in fantastical and, and dystopian ways. So um, thank you for joining me. And uh, I look forward to learning with you next week when we, when we finish this out with our text study. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.